past. And uh, I've always found him fascinating, and I've always disagreed with him. Not violently, but kind of, you know, in, in a curious way. Uh, and uh, I think he was a libertarian in the 70s. I'm kind of a left libertarian now. He's right now going through a period of what I shall call anti-revolutionary pessimism. Uh, but it's a very fruitful pessimism because he has been able to eliminate all sorts of interesting issues like Al-Qaeda, like uh, 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 his, his, his last book uh, on, on animal, uh, uh, animals and humans and whatever it was, and this current book uh, called uh, Black, uh, Black Mouse. And I think there is a vision that the world has kind of gone wrong, not out of wickedness, but out of an attempt of, for being virtuous. That our problem is utopianism, idealism, and the, and the extraordinary belief in reason uh, that has caused us these horrendous uh, problems of violence and mass murder and, you know, sort of virtual slavery and so on. But all the time, he writes with such a lovely, light touch that you really like reading and you feel more, more, please, more. And that is what, as far as I'm going to go because I want to have more of John Gray. John Gray, thank you. Thank you very much, Meghnad, and thank you all for coming tonight to the LSE to hear me talk about my new book. I couldn't have a, uh, a better introduction than the one Meghnad has just given me. And since I do want this to be as much of a dialogue as is practicable within the time, I plan to speak only for about 40 minutes and to devote most of my remarks to why I wrote the book. Why did I write the book when I did write it? And what uh, was I trying to do in the book? And in order to... Um, what I was saying was uh, I intended to devote the 40 minutes which I have at my disposal before we have the dialogue part of, the, of this event in trying to answer the question why I wrote the book and what I intended to do in the book. And um, I think perhaps the best way I can begin to answer that question is by the narrative of the last 20 years, at least as I've observed it. And I can be being by going back less than 20 years, by going back to 1989, when the Soviet Union began its collapse, it only actually formally um, ceased to exist um, uh, sometime later, a couple of years later. But at that time, I was deeply impressed by the, what I viewed as the wholly unreal expectations that existed in the West about what would occur after the Soviet collapse. I had been a long time... Uh, anti-communist. I don't regret that in any way at all. I regarded that regime as an extremely harmful, destructive, uh, uh, tyrannous regime, one of the worst regimes that humanity has had to suffer. So I was pleased when it collapsed in 1989, and I wasn't as surprised as many other people were. 
But right from 1989, right from October, November, December 1989, I was writing that this huge collapse would generate enormous problems. I wasn't alone in that. Um, someone who I regard as at least compared with the present generation of political leaders, a rather wise man, I refer to George Bush Sr., not the present George Bush, said in 1989, this is a great event, but we must not congratulate ourselves because there are going to be enormous, vast problems. And I thought that was absolutely right at the time, and I also was interested to see that it was completely ignored. Because what happened in 1989, I know many of you here would uh, um, not remember this too directly because perhaps some of you um, were quite young at the time, but what happened at the time was a huge wave of unrealistic optimism and unrealistic utopianism emanating and being expressed in things like Francis Fukuyama's hugely influential theory of the end of history. Now, I spent several uh, uh, public occasions having dialogues with Fukuyama, all of which have been completely unprofitable and unproductive, although he's a nice chap. Um, and I think the root of the unprofitability is that, to me, in 1989, it was obvious, and I wrote this in what I think was perhaps the first critical assessment, not of his book, which hadn't come out then, but of his original article, which appeared in um, August of 1989, my f I wrote an attack on that book in um, October 1989, in which I said, what is about to happen is not the end of history, it is the resumption of history. History in its normal modes, with some new things connected with the development of technology, connected with the growth of prosperity in some countries, but essentially the resumption of history. The period from 1945 to 1990 was a period dominated by a wholly anomalous ideological and strategic quarrel between the Western and the Soviet Union. When that quarrel broke down with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that did not mean the end of history and it did not mean victory for the West. What it meant was that we simply reverted to a kind of more normal stage of historical development in which the conflicts that raged were about, and I I said they would be about issues such as ethnic national conflicts, conflicts between different religious communities, including fundamentalist movements, and a very important point, conflicts between states for control of natural resources. A crucial point, um, uh, and one which was adamantly denied at the time. At the time when one said that the old, what was called in the 19th century, the great game when the then imperial powers, Britain, Russia, uh, uh, particularly Germany also, were competing for control of um, uh, um, the developing energy resources of Central Asia. That was called the great game at the end of the 19th century. If you said that the great game was about to be repeated, but with new members, because China and India, which were at that time um, uh, subjugated Powers. They were colonies of the West, in fact or in reality, or in, in, in name or in and, and in reality. They're now independent industrializing countries, so the new great game has some new players, powerful players, um, but it still is a conflict between a competition, a rivalry between sovereign states for access principally to oil, natural gas, perhaps in future to water, 
If one said that at that time, one was accused of what was called apocalyptic pessimism, something I've been quite used to being accused of. Now, the oddity is that all I was saying was that history would go on as usual. So one had a kind of very odd situation at the time, which is that if one said that history had ended, as Francis Fukuyama had said, had said, if one said that all the major conflicts of the past, conflicts between religions, conflicts about the best form of government, conflicts of natural resources, ethnic national conflicts, if you said that all those conflicts were going to fade away and vanish, as Fukuyama, a kind of upside-down Marxist, neoconservative Marxist, did say, then everyone nodded their heads very sagely in the words think tanks and said, a man of steely realism. But if one said, no, none of these conflicts will go away, they'll all come back. They'll come back because a vast totalitarian structure founded on fear has collapsed without almost any violence in the former Soviet Union because even the nomenclature, even the elite, lacked the will to defend it. They weren't interested in it. They were disillusioned by it. It collapsed almost with, with almost nothing in the way of violence, a little bit in the Baltic states, some in Poland, but practically speaking, nothing. What will happen after that will be that all the repressed conflicts will come out and there will be a situation in certain respects similar to that at the end of the 19th century. There will be redrawing of borders, there will be uh, conflicts of religions, and there will be a global conflict, not necessarily immediately military, though it rapidly became military, I'll come back to that in a moment, um, over energy resources, people said that was apocalyptic. So that led me to sort of think, what does apocalypse really mean? Uh, where does the term apocalyptic come from? Now, of course, in everyday language, it just means catastrophic or terrible, but it's actually, of course, a religious term. It's a biblical term. It goes back to the, the Bible, the, the Christian um, Bible, and, and uh, what it means in there is an unveiling of mysteries which typically occurs at the end of history. And the normal idea of an apocalyptic event in, in the religious context, context is that of a, a vast war, a titanic war, which is, however, always brief, just in case you find this a bit too gloomy. It's always extremely brief, but titanic and world-shaking, after which we have an entirely new world, a world in which there's no poverty, in which there's no uh, intractable conflict or tragic problems, in which there's peace, in which there's human brotherhood, in which there's an entirely new order. Now, that's a religious idea. It goes back to the origins of Christianity and even before, all the way back to Zoroastrianism. Um, and uh, it's an idea, I then came to think, that although its origins are in religion, in certain particular religious traditions, it seeped into modern politics. Now, you might say, haven't human beings always thought like this? The answer is No. Human beings have not always thought like this. In many religious and cultural traditions, including that of actually pre-Christian Europe, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, when you read their histories, they don't think that history has a purpose or an end. They don't think it has a consummation, that it's a single narrative, a kind of tale of good and evil, uh, a redemption story. For the ancient writers, Tacitus, even for philosophers like Aristotle, they think of human history as being like cyclical, the way natural processes such as the seasons are cyclical. Civilizations rise, they flourish, they go through a period of maturity, they then begin to fail, and then they collapse. And for a period, you might have barbarism, but then again, new civilizations arise in future, and that process is permanent. 
And in fact, I think that view um, was, is found in most human cultures, most human civilizations. Most um, cultures have not adopted the view that uh, is found within Western religious traditions, including Islam, uh, according to which um, history is a kind of single-track narrative. And at the end of it, there's some sort of cataclysmic uh, conflict, or if not a conflict, because of course Fukuyama's upside-down Marxist version of this was unusual in that this transformation was supposed to take place by sudden outbreak of world peace. didn't happen, of course. Um, um, but the end is a situation in which there is no conflict, there is global harmony. And this led me to think that this idea of an apocalypse, this religious idea, this myth, in fact, because it is a myth, because in the real world, history never ends. In the real world, there is no end to history. Uh, uh, in the real world, there is no large, great event in which everything changes for the better. History simply goes on. The problem with accepting that is that we've grown up on, most of us in the West, and now in most parts of the world, a secular version of this apocalyptic view. The secular version says it's not God that's pushing this all along, it's humanity. The secular view says the future of humanity can be radically better than the past. Now, I think practically everyone here probably believes that that's possible. I don't. I think that the future of humanity in its ethical and political aspects will be much the same as the past. Some things will be different because we have new technologies, because we have a much larger human population. We have a situation in which human activity has triggered a climate change which is ongoing and cannot now be stopped by human action. Humans have triggered it, but humans can't stop it. So there are some, though they can perhaps moderate it, limit it, slow it down or adjust to it intelligently, but they can't stop it. So there are certain new features, new facts, but basically the basic situation of um, humanity remains the same. And the evils with which human beings have always struggled, the evils of cruelty and barbarism, which uh, our idea of progress leads us to think have been permanently abolished, always come back. Now let me give you a, again a narrative example of this to make it a bit more clear. And this is one which, unlike the collapse of the Cold War, every single person in this room will have lived through. This is something every single person who's living to, listening to me now will have watched and experienced and, 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 and uh, observed. Within the last uh, three, four uh, years, torture has been rehabilitated as a normal and in some contexts legal technique of war and government. Now, I speak with some um, passion. I'm passionately opposed to torture. I believe that the, the prohibition of torture was never, of course, abolished, but at least it was prohibited in many international conventions and it became illegal in most countries, liberal democratic countries, to accept uh, evidence on the basis of torture. I think that was a major advance in human civilization. Uh, interestingly, although I'm a critic of the Enlightenment, I'm the first to admit that that advance was partly produced by Enlightenment thinkers and activists such as Montesquieu and Voltaire who campaigned relentlessly against the judicial torture of the day so that was a, a great a benefit of the Enlightenment but I, I believed that I was, I was sort of actually reasonably confident that that huge advance because torture is an extremely corrosive corrupting practice it seems to me apart from the horror it involves for the victims um, it also I think corrodes the whole 
uh, any modern society that practices it or legitimates it, um, I began to think during the war on terror that it would come back. And that it would come back not secretly or um, uh, uh, as part in some dark cellars of some dark reactionary regime. It would be embraced by liberal warriors in the war on terror as part of the battle for human rights. So in February 2003, that is to say um, a month or so before the Iraq invasion, I published a spoof in the London New Statesman, which was called Torture, a Modest Proposal. Those of you who read Jonathan Swift will know what that means. It, Jonathan Swift proposed as a solution to the famine in Ireland, which was going on in his day, so the solution is very simple. The Irish simply have to beat their children, and that will solve it. Now, that was a dark, satirical um, proposition. It was a satire. I produced a similar satire in um, February 2003 in which I said, now that torture, this was before, of course, Abu Ghraib, um, now that torture seems to be on the horizon, we have to consider the well-being and the self-image of the torturer. The torturers have had a bad press throughout history. They've had very little decent counseling or therapy. They have a difficult job. They have not very good legal representation. Um, if we're going to do this, if it's going to come back, what we need is to really have a new skilled professional, professional interrogator. And we also need to change our theories of human rights. In the past, we've had these rather footling theories of human rights which say that there's a right against being tortured. What we need is to change this and to have a right to be tortured, a new right. And not only that, we have to have a right which if states don't recognize it, they come under the possibility of regime change. So states that stick to this old, outmoded human right against torture, rather than introduce in some way or other a right to be tortured, they would have, should have to be destabilized. Anyway, I published that, and it led to innumerable telephone calls to the new states when people ringing up and canceling their subscription. <laughs> Evidently, many people had not heard of Jonathan Swift, didn't know what a modest proposal was, and took it seriously, even though I laid on the irony pretty thickly towards the end just to make it sure that everybody knew that it was a spoof. But some people were taken in, and many people still are, because, of course, since then it's become normal. Now no country has said we're now torturing, but what has now happened is that the world's leading democracy has legitimated techniques which have categorically and universally been regarded as torture up to now. Waterboarding was used by Pol Pot, the Pol Pot regime, it was used by the Japanese in the Second World War, and when it was used by the Japanese, they got 15 years of hard labor for using it. It was used by Pol Pot, and it was part of the barbarism of that regime. Sensory deprivation was used, and sleep deprivation were used in the Stalin period to extract confessions from people who had been falsely accused of various crimes under the Stalin regime. Both of those techniques are now regarded as non-torture. They're simply a slightly more abrasive genre of conversation. <laughs> Although they can and do lead to death, and they can and do lead to madness on those suffering from them or to severe psychological trauma. So what's happened is that the world's leading liberal democracy has reclassified uh, uh, types of uh, behavior, uh, types of practice, types of interrogation, which under international treaties since the Second World War universally regarded as being torturous, not torture at all. And it's done so against the background of a war against terror, which says that these techniques can advance the cause of freedom. Now, what does this illustrate? 
I mean the deeper truth, apart from any criticism of, of, of recent policy, and I'll come back to Iraq briefly in a moment. What it illustrates is something which is denied or which is assumed not to be true by believers in progress. Believers in progress have a kind of step-by-step, phasal, phase, developmental view. You abolish certain evils, they're abolished, they stay abolished, then you go on to abolish other evils. So if you abolish slavery, then you can go on to improve working conditions. If you improve working conditions, then you can go on to improve other conditions. It's assumed that at each stage, what you've achieved in abolishing an important evil or restricting an important evil is permanent and secure. My view, which is, I think, illustrated by the example of torture, is that every one of these gains can be and normally is lost over time. That none of them are secure. That all of them can vanish in the, in the blink of an eye, as the example of torture shows. If five years ago someone has said, as I did, that torture could come back, not just as a practice, it's gone on all over the world. The British used it in, in Kenya and in Northern Ireland, for example. Um, but if I argued, as I did, that the prohibition on torture could go, that it could be redefined to really make the prohibition meaningless, and that it would be liberals and civil libertarians who would argue for this. In America, there are arguments by civil libertarians for a torture warrant. There are even proposals about how people should be tortured. It's been suggested that needles be used but carefully sterilized beforehand. So there is, to- there is progress, you see. There is some kind of progress. At least they don't get unwanted infections before they suffer this agony and then die, perhaps. Um, If you'd argued that five years ago, you would be considered practically crazy. But it has, in fact, happened. It's happened overnight. And we've had serious legal disputes, legal questions in Britain as elsewhere, as to whether evidence acquired under torture could be acceptable in in a British court. These have been serious legal issues. That too, that this would ever be an issue was almost unthinkable five years ago. So one of the points I'm laboring is that um, I think basically because of uh, the background of religious ideas being then secularized, turned into secular ideologies, utopian ideologies and even ideologies of progress, we've assumed that certain types of cumulative change and improvement and advance can occur in ethics and politics of the kind that really do occur in science and technology. In science and technology, progress is real. Postmodernists who say that science is just a series of beliefs equal in standing to magical beliefs, to any other beliefs, I think are too silly to be worth disputing with. Um, the fact that there are six, nearly seven billion human beings in the world and will soon be around maybe nine or ten billion is testimony to the power of science. That there are so many human beings hasn't occurred by accident. It's occurred by a mixture of um, modern medicine, uh, public health, industrialized agriculture. Uh, all of these basically spin-offs from the growth of human knowledge. The growth of human knowledge is a fact. The growth of human power is a fact. And in these uh, contexts, progress is real. And it's not going to stop. Even if it was desirable, it's accelerating. The growth of knowledge is accelerating throughout the world. Nothing really imaginable, not even a large-scale ecological crisis on a planetary level, can really, it seems to me, realistically stop this. If science died out in one part of the world, this knowledge is now global. 
uh, it would um, continue in other parts of the world. We're on a trajectory of growing knowledge, uh, uh, and that's not going to change. And that's fundamentally different from ethics and politics. In ethics and politics, any gain that has been made can be and normally is lost. And although this is perhaps many people, I mean, for some reason people find this a slightly um, disturbing or unsettling thought, um, I think it's a sort of cautionary thought. And if we'd had it more often, if we'd had it at the back of our minds, maybe we could have done more to prevent the return of torture. We could have delayed it longer. We could have defended civilization. And I think an integral part of any modern civilization is a ban on torture. We could have defended that longer and more effectively. Um, so uh, um, my, argument then, my argument then is that uh, this view of history in which is basically cyclical, in which there is no progress, uh, no continuous cumulative advance in um, uh, ethics and politics, is actually one which is true, although it's very unpopular, uh, and it's also one which is, could be useful. It could be useful because to the extent that we rely on this notion, we suddenly find old evils coming back, but usually called by other names. The 20th century had lots of slavery, not chattel slavery of the kind that existed in the American South in the 19th century and in British colonies in the Caribbean and elsewhere. It wasn't called slavery. Slaves were important and sold, but there was massive slavery when the Nazis invaded uh, Eastern Europe. There was slavery in the camps. There was huge slavery uh, in the Soviet gulag, and there is slavery to this day in the Chinese gulag, but it's not called slavery. There's also human trafficking, which now exists, not called slavery, but it's sort of a kind of slavery. All these evils tend to come back, but to be called something different. So my first point is that, if you ask why did I write this book, it was because the expectations people had um, in 1989, the Fukuyama's expectations, seemed to me to be completely absurd and fantastic, and anybody with a smattering of knowledge of human history could see that, and yet many very well-placed people took them seriously. Now, you might say, was he taken seriously? Well, I spent quite a bit of time in the United States around then when the book came out, and I can tell you as a matter of fact that shortly after the book, many foundations that were funding, had funding foreign policy programs stopped funding them. Why? Well, you don't need foreign policy. There's going to be world peace, do you? You don't need foreign policy if, as Tsukuyama said, or you don't need much of it anyway, you need less of it, uh, if, as he said, democratic capitalism is now the final form of human government. The final form of human government. All these disputes which limited intellects like Plato or Hobbes had engaged in in the past about which is the best form of human government. All these terrible human conflicts, civil wars uh, uh, in Britain, uh, uh, in America, Revolutionary wars in Europe after the French Revolution. None of those are going to happen in the future because everyone will now accept that democratic capitalism is the uh, only form of um, legitimate government. So it did have an effect. It also had an effect on people I knew who were reforming the post-communist countries. I'll just mention that very briefly before moving on to my next point because it was comical at the time, although rather sad in certain respects as well. Um, the reform of post-communist countries right at the start of the 90s was characterized by the following thing. You could meet people getting on planes with constitutions and economic policies in their briefcases, and they didn't know which countries they're going to. See, Mongolia? Well, maybe. It could be Czechoslovakia, though. Um, in other words, they had the same 
proposals for hugely, radically different countries with different cultures, different national traditions, different circumstances, different levels of development, and different problems. But they went out with the same thing in their briefcases. Now, one could predict at the time that although this might work in a few cases, some of the East European, Central European countries have done reasonably well, it would not work in the key case of Russia, and it probably wouldn't work in Central Asia either, because the circumstances were just too different. What was needed was not another dose of ideology, in this case not Marxism, but the upside-down version of neoliberal thinking, which Fukuyama and others were pushing at that time. What was needed was realism, pragmatism, humility, modesty, to help these very different societies, different cultures with different histories over long periods, to improve their lot, to improve their material lot and their political development, which would inevitably be, to some extent, and in some cases rather radically, different. But that's not what we got. Instead, what we got was a new period of um, ideological, um, uh, of rule by ideology, and a new period, if you like, of messianic fervor. Everyone was convinced for a few years that um, there would be this transformation. However, if you lived through that period, you also noticed that some of the new conflicts that were going to dominate the 21st century had already begun. People, again, sometimes ask me, why are you so dogmatically pessimistic about the possibility of resource wars? Why do you continually insist that these coming decades and perhaps this century will be partly at least shaped by resource wars? Well, my answer is we've already seen one large resource war, the first Gulf War. I also think Iraq is in one of its important dimensions a resource war. But the first Gulf War at the start of the 90s was nothing but an oil war. No one at that time said any otherwise. All the major politicians involved said it was a war solely concerned to protect global oil supplies. No one that I'm aware of ever talked about global democracy, eternal and infinite justice, transcendental cosmic freedom, or any of these other ideas, or global democracy. No one ever used any of these terms in Britain or America or Japan or in any of the other countries that funded that war and fought that war in different ways. It was purely an oil war. So and of course, the 20th century was full of um, oil wars, oil politics. Uh, in the 1950s, the elected government of Iran was toppled by a joint Anglo-American operation. Um, both of the world wars had important geopolitical aspects. Um, all along with the ideological struggles of the 20th century, there were geopolitical struggles. So only a year, immediately after the Soviet collapse, we had a major resource war. Um, had broken out. That's a fact. And since then, um, resource wars have, in my view, resource rivalries and competition have continued, but they've, of course, become mixed up with other conflicts, with national conflicts, with religious conflicts, with new types of ideological conflicts, arguments about universal democracy and universal human rights. And these mix into a very volatile and rather dangerous mixed year. If you were to ask me what is the worst possibility, I think, apart from climate change, which is bigger than all of these conflicts, which overshadows them all and makes them all trivial in a certain way. But putting climate change on one side, and of course there are connections through energy use, which I'll talk about briefly at the end. But if you ask me what was the worst thing that could happen, I think it could be 
uh, a kind of intersection of resource war with clash of civilizations. Now, I'm not one who believes in clashing civilizations. I think it's a terrible um, uh, idea. I think it's grossly oversimplified and dangerous. The best comment on it I've ever heard was made by a leading Egyptian politician I talked to um, uh, before the Iraq war, and I said, what do you think of this idea of um, clashing civilizations? He said, it's complete nonsense from beginning to end, but it could all come true. And that's what I fear. It is complete nonsense from beginning to end. Civilizations are very complicated. Um, there are many of them. Although, by the way, I recommend you to try this if you, if you, if you have time. Uh, read Professor Huntington's book, and at the end of it, try to count how many civilizations there are. I went through, and sometimes I got six, others eight. Sometimes I got, I think, at one point up to 13. When I asked myself, what really is a civilization for Professor Huntington, and at the end of the day, I could only come up with probably an American minority because anything that wasn't an American minority didn't tend to get counted. Um, so I think the whole idea is nonsense. But it could happen. It could happen because of badly managed resource competition, badly managed wars, which have a very strong resource uh, uh, um, element, mixing in with conflicts in the world uh, uh, between um, predominantly Islamic countries and other conflicts, and also intra-Islamic conflicts which could turn out to be equally or even more important. So the point of the book is to really sort of uncover this religious um, uh, uh, um, uh, apocalyptic, this, this inheritance of apocalyptic myth which underlies secular political thought. In one sense, I don't think secularization has occurred at all. Obviously, in other commonsensical senses, it has. Some countries are more secular than others. If you mean by that countries in which organized religion is less powerful than others. Britain, although it has an established church, is incomparably more secular in this sense than America, where there is a separation of church and state. So in a kind of that sense, there is secularization. But if you look at it slightly more deeply and ask whether the patterns of thought, about, particularly about human history, which, we inherit, which, were, which were prominent in the Western religious tradition, whether they have altered, despite the retreat in many Western countries of religious belief, I think my answer is on general, no. In general, we still think in ways um, which are shaped by uh, um, religious categories. And that goes against a very strong tradition in social science. And social science, most 19th and 20th century social scientists have assumed that there is some, uh, not inevitable, not completely universal, but a strong historical process whereby as societies get richer, as they become more dependent on, on um, science, they become societies in which religion becomes less important. They become, in that sense, more secular. I think there is no such general process, no such general law. I don't, th I, 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 I don't see evidence for it. The society which in the world is seen by many people and by many in that society, America, as being the most modern, certainly has a tremendous amount of scientific development going on in it, uh, it has, at least up till now, been rather rich. Um, it's also one which is today as religious, if not more so, than it was when Alexis de Tocqueville travelled at the first part of the 19th century and commented on the intense religiosity of, of America, even compared with Canada at that time. So nothing has changed in the interval. Some countries have become much less religious. Ireland is one, for example. Some of the Southern European Catholic countries, Spain and Italy, 
but there's no general pattern, it seems to me. And in general, in this respect, as in other respects, what I think it's reasonable to anticipate is a cyclical process. But that can be masked by the new types of ideology which emerge claiming to be anti-religious or non-religious. But if you look deeper, you find the forms of thought are very similar. In other words, it's not that I'm saying that secular uh, movements have religious beliefs. They reject the beliefs of religion, but the pattern, the background framework of thought is very similar in many respects, and I think dangerously similar when applied in um, politics. So where does this leave us now? Um, um, one of the most perceptive uh, um, American uh, commentators on philosophy, I refer to Woody Allen, said that prediction is a very dangerous business, especially when it concerns the future. Uh, and I think there's something in that. Um, but inevitably, we're all drawn into it because as humans, as concerned human beings, we can't help trying to think how the world will develop. And although we must always be aware that we may be wrong, and we all are wrong frequently, I think we have to think about what the kind of scenarios could develop from the world as we find it today. And let me therefore make a couple of closing remarks um, uh, about that. Now, I've said two or three times that if the scientific consensus is correct, which I believe it to be substantially so, I'm not a scientist, I can only go by talking to scientists I trust and by reading uh, um, uh, as extensively as I can in scientific literature, climate change, as we're now experiencing it, is predominantly humanly triggered. Now, this wasn't always true of climate change because there were plenty of climate changes in the history of the planet when there were no human beings. So we can be pretty sure it wasn't human beings that caused it in those days. But this one does seem to be caused, at least to some significant extent, by the kinds of, uh, by industrialization, by the extractive technologies used in industrialization, by growth in emissions, although emissions are only half the story. The idea that we can deal with this vast problem by implanting wind turbines in favored parts of Chelsea, where I'm told the wind is fairly intermittent anyway, is a fantasy, and more seriously, the idea that controlling emissions will do it is also a fantasy, even if we could control emissions. Because the other side of climate change, which is equally important, is the destruction of the natural biosphere, which in the past regulated climate and that's one of the reasons, by the way, that uh, most proposals for biofuels are extremely deleterious and destructive, apart from being a highly profitable scam. Because, because most of them are very inefficient, they involve turning over large parts of the world, including some of the remaining wilderness, to monocultural production of fuels from ethanol and so on. Or to put it in a slightly more colorful way, they involve turning the rest of the world the natural world, into a vast gas station. Um, now, apart from that being an extremely hideous to me prospect, it's also very damaging in terms of climate because what is known about climate is that if, for example, we move into a world in which both the caps melt and the remaining wildernesses of the Amazon and elsewhere are gone, either because they're being used for ethanol or for other reasons, then many of the mechanisms which have in the past soaked up emissions will stop working. 
So the idea that this can be resolved solely by emissions is a, one of the many illusions which um, exist at the moment about climate change. It can't, in fact, be stopped. Humans triggered it, but humans don't have the power to stop it. It's in the works now. The best we can do is moderate it, adapt ourselves to it, um, develop technologies, try to uh, um, uh, um, fend against, stave off the evils that will come with this, prepare for it. It's important that we don't go to four or five degrees increase, if we can avoid that, because if any of you have read the science on that, that's truly catastrophic. So we do have to try and moderate the process, keep it beneath two degrees if that's still possible. Um, and that can perhaps still be done. But limiting emissions is only, is, only, uh, um, is only a part of it. So that's the huge which is hanging in the background. But what I think complicates all this is what most environmental thinkers, I'll come back to the issue of, the, of religion issues right at the end. Most environmental thinkers and activists seem to be to neglect the growing pace of geopolitical conflict and rivalry. Where does it show up? Not only in Iraq, which now it is admitted, again, adamantly denied, but now we have Greenspan saying, well, of course it was oil. Um, uh, if he says it now, in his retirement, you can be pretty sure there are good grounds for it. didn't say it at the time, of course, as far as I'm aware. Um, and people who did were say, accused of talking in conspiracy theories and so on. But oil was clearly a factor. But apart from Iraq, every, many countries, Canada, Denmark, Britain, Russia, are making claims to the polar caps. Why are they doing this? A suddenly intensified interest in cartography? It's all about natural gas, oil, etc. And so that process of geopolitical competition and rival is going on as we speak. And I think this is something which the Green campaigners, the Green environmentalists, many of them, of course, are anti-war. Let's give them credit. But the problem is these processes have a quite a strong momentum. Let's say there is no global entity which can solve the world, which can allocate efficiently the world's natural resources. There are large, about 200 sovereign states, of which a few are well-organized and powerful, and most are rather weak. And the states, which have a high degree of power, seem to be already gearing up. Even states which in the past, like Canada, have been rather peaceful and uh, liberal in many of their attitudes and policies, are gearing up to seize these resources. Now, the problem, of course, by seizing these resources is that when one uses them then, further emissions, emissions are important, even though they're not the whole story, uh, if you move on to things like tar sands, um, uh, even dirtier than regular conventional oil, um, the problem is that this process is extremely toxic in terms of climate change. Now, some of you, I'm sure, and I'll conclude this, but will say, this all sounds rather apocalyptic. <laughs> in other words, what I'm saying is we're coming up to a, a period of uh, great conflict um, which I think what we need is not utopian dreams, but we need extremely cool heads. We need extremely uh, resolute will to navigate these conflicts in the most intelligent way we can with the least damage to ourselves and other human beings and to the environment and its non-human, its remaining non-human uh, um, flora and fauna and animals and so forth. That's what we need. 
But is it apocalyptic? Well, in one sense, it, it, clearly it isn't. Um, there have been many examples in history of human ecological devastation. If you read Homer's Odyssey, which actually was, uh, began as a series of songs, um, oral poetry, you'll find that Greece was, and the, was heavily forested at that time. It was green. That was deforested a long time ago. Um, there are many, many examples of ecological transformation inflicted by humans, often to the detriment, detriment either of other humans or of other species. One feature, though, is different now, which is that it's happening on a global scale, and it's global planetary mechanisms that seem to be disturbed. And um, uh, I have no sympathy for the so-called skeptical environmentalist. Skeptical environmentalism basically means dogmatic denial of facts. This is not just computer models. The melting is really occurring. If you live in the, in the Himalayas or in that part of India, you'll see it every day uh, um, or every year. Uh, the, the, there is clearly uh, a shift afoot, and 98 or 99% of scientists accept this. So the rejection of this is ideological. It's basically a rejection which says um, business as usual is okay, we just have to adapt ourselves a little bit. I think we do have to adapt ourselves, but it'll be a very profound and difficult adaptation which will involve large changes in the way um, that we live. Where does religion come into all this? Well, um, the tendency of apocalyptic thinking is to represent everything that happens in human history as being directed to humans. Now, the interesting thing about the environmental crisis is humans figure in it um, marginally. The earth doesn't know about what we think or feel or say. It doesn't say, well, these are rather kind of splendid, noble animals here. I better be fairly patient with regarding them. They might take another 50 or 100 years to get their act together. Let's lay off for a while. It doesn't say that. It doesn't care what we think or feel or say. It only cares what humans do. And what humans are doing for the time being, uh, sometimes for good reasons. I'm not an opponent of worldwide industrialization. I don't reject what is being done in China and India. It's necessary. It's desirable. To the extent that it produces more pollution, it's often because we've simply outsourced our pollution to them. We don't pollute because we, because we pay them to do it for us. Um, we can't sit back and say, you've got to go to, uh, go to the form of life that we had before our Industrial Revolution because we are ecologically cleaner than you are. All of those things are totally absurd and reprehensible. But the problem is that I find it very difficult, and having talked to some scientists and kind of pressed them on these, I find it very difficult to imagine a world of 9 or 10 billion human beings living which is the UN protection for 2050, living at the energy-intensive levels that we do in Britain and Japan and parts of China uh, and so on. A world, of, it's very hard to, given the existing science, to really imagine this. So there has to be rather fundamental change. And if we don't change, then, as it were, all apocalyptic myths are anthropocentric. All apocalyptic myths focus on humans as if they were the only passengers in the world and the only ones that counted. But as I say, in planetary terms, this could be a catastrophe for us. But in planetary terms, it's normal. There have been many examples in which over 90% of the existing biosphere was wiped out, it's thought, at several periods in the geological past, but came back. So in planetary terms, it probably 
Isn't that disastrous? Whether you find that consoling or not, I don't know. But, uh, but it could be extremely devastating for humans. And so my argument is really that rather than indulging in myths, which are politically disastrous and humanly disastrous, and even in ecological thought, have, a, have a, I think, a, a, a role of obscuring a vision of reality. The idea that we, can, we must either choose between utopia or disaster. The whole world must clean its act up on ecology or there'll be disaster. If they have a choice, there'll be disaster. If that is the choice, there will certainly be disaster. We should think more pragmatically, more realistically, if you like, more modestly, and ask ourselves, how can we intelligently interact and cooperate in order to negotiate this extremely difficult set of circumstances rather than turning to a series of myths which tells us that um, the world can suddenly change as a result of some utopian transformation of human society or human thoughts. Um, as they used to say in, um, in Eastern Europe before the fall of communism, don't expect too much from the end of the world. That's an unwise form. Things simply go on. I, I, my argument then is, if we accepted that, maybe they would go on a little less disastrously. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, John. Now, quickly, I just want to see the hands going up. Okay. I hope we don't have any... Oh, we've got microphones. God, that's going to hold up everything. Okay, why don't you give the microphone to that person there? Yes, and then somebody give a microphone to that person there. Yeah, question. Do you think that um, with education, the, the world population might realize that the greatest problem is that there are too many of them? Mm. Mm. Um, Shall I, I yeah. take a few? Yeah. I will answer that. Yeah. I will yes. answer that. Uh, hi. Um, I, I find that I, I've, I've read a couple of your books, and I find that your um, abilities with regard to diagnosis are impeccable. Um, but I tend to see very little in terms of prescription. Um, and you, you talk about um, thinking about history in a, a cyclical fashion. And when you do um, begin to speak in prescriptive terms, um, you're, you're talking about uh, behaviors that will um, delay or ameliorate or... What's the um, question? <laughs> my question is, if, if you are advising those people um, uh, who are setting policies according to your prescriptions, who would you rather have setting policies? People who actually believe that progress matters and progress is possible or the best we can hope for is simply ameliorating disaster? Okay. Uh, that's fine. I would okay, give it to that person there and at the, uh, over here. Next. Okay. Yeah, that person. Yeah. Yes, you. I have a very utopic idea about the possibility of a latter-day renaissance through mankind. That there are many, many ways of introducing such a, a movement in general, but where the accents of the circumstances are not uh, paramount, but man, through his own convictions, creates a different level of orientation to held up uh, this very conflictual and disastrous perspective to the future. What's the question? And the question is, if 
he can introduce with his brilliant mind also an uh, idea how one can put in motion a latter day renaissance through mankind. Given that history is ongoing um, and not cyclical completely um, because of economic social development, um, what is your argument for claiming that politics and ethics will be the same in the future? In what sense will it be the same in the future? Okay, uh, there's a person here who wants to ask a question. On this side, anybody want to ask a question? Please raise your hand so we can direct the mic to you. Okay. Um, isn't there a concrete refutation of your pessimism of, of, on progress, which is the accretion of international law and norms in human rights, etc.? One may be cynical about this. It may be deeply imperfect. But isn't there now a standard against which we can measure, say, the appear, reappearance of torture or, or the treatment of women or whatever? Good. Uh, over there? The, at the back. The back. Yeah. 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 I mean, listen, listening to both half of the talk, it seemed a, a case of, of somebody wanting to have their cake and eat it too. And on the one hand, there's no progress, there's uh, history cyclical, etc. But the last part of the discussion was, was an ethical argument about what, what we should do. Um, my question is just very simple. Um, where, on, what, where do you, on what philosophical architecture do you hang your ethical hat on? Okay, gentlemen in the back. Yeah, would you concede that the position of women in much of the world is better now, both politically and, and materially, than it's been at any point in, in history? And would you think that at least politically that's irreversible? And as a subsidiary question, do our beliefs about that have some, some role to play? Okay. Otherwise, there'll be too many to answer yeah. at once, and I don't want to talk for too long. Okay. I'll answer the last one first. Yes, the position of women is in most parts of the world better than ever before, and that's good. But can it be reversed? Certainly. Now, you might say, well, that's sort of unthinkable. Well, let me give you an example. Iraq. In Saddam's Iraq, which was a, a vile despotism in many ways and inflicted many atrocities, if you were... Uh, a woman or gay, if you were a Christian, a Jew, a Mandian, or Yezidi, your life, however terrible, was less threatened in its freedom and well-being than it is now. What has come about from that war is a form of popular theocracy which is more hostile to women, more hostile to gays, more hostile to religious and other minorities than anything that existed before. So yes, it can be reversed. I'm not saying the whole world is going to undergo that process, but wherever these achievements exist, they can be reversed. And um, that is one example of that being reversed. It's progress, but it's, it's advance, if you like, but it's reversible. And that distinguishes it from progress in science. Because short of the wiping out of the human species, the growth of knowledge which we've experienced in the last 100 years or so is not going to be reversed. We're not going to bring back um, phlogiston. Mm. We're not going to go back to alchemy. A department of alchemy will not be established at Cambridge in the next hundred years. Uh, whatever else may happen. Uh, science is progressive, in other words, in a way that politics and ethics is not. And in a way also, by the way, I just mentioned this because it's interesting to me, in a way which art is not. Would we say that uh, impressionism is progressively better than the ancient pyramids of Egypt? 
You say, my God, that was a long struggle, but at last we've got Impressionism. <laughs> um, we had to be really tough here. All these anti-Impressionist reactionaries have been battling against it all throughout the Middle Ages, setting up their ridiculous cathedrals and, uh, and so on. Um, no, I mean, these are different forms of art. I'm not a relativist. I'm not an ethical relativist. Partly answers a question which was uh, asked before. I don't have any complicated philosophical architecture for my ethical views. One thing I do have is the belief that certain evils are generically human. I'm not one of those who say that if you live in a culture which has long tortured people, you'll find it positively spiffing to be tortured. You say, well, I mean, it's actually a sort of mark of respect, really, around here. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think being tortured, being separated from your family, being persecuted, being subject to arbitrary arrest, being in danger of pogroms, these are evils for whoever suffers them. So there are certain evils which are humanly universal, and I also think there are certain goods that are humanly universal. The problem arises from the awkward fact that in the real world of history, not all these evils can be staved off at the same time. In order to prevent war, we do sometimes have to go to war. In order to prevent terrible events happening in the world, terrible denial, we sometimes have to do terrible things. But we should only do those things when they're strictly necessary, when we can't avoid, when we can't find any other way of dealing with the conflict. What we shouldn't do, it seems to me, as was done in the 20th century and is advocated now, is inflict terrible evils for the sake of speculative goals like universal democracy, which is, are not going to happen. We should only do so in order to fight off even um, worse evils. So my basic, my basic view of ethics is I'm not a relativist about ethics, so I think some ethical conflicts are very difficult to resolve. My basic view is that the root of human ethics is in human nature. If you go back to the 19th century and read about chattel slavery, you'll read that the defenders of slavery said, slaves are different from us. They don't mind having their families broken up. They don't mind living in these horrible hovels at the bottom of the garden, which you can still see if you go to places like in the deep south of America. Well, if you study the lives of these people who normally had very little voice, what you find is they ran away a lot. They attempted to escape a lot. They attempted to reunify families that had been split up by slavery. If you look at their behavior, you find that they were very similar in their feelings to the way you or I or anyone in this room would be. So that kind of relativism seems to be, that kind of postmodern relativism which says ethics is entirely cultural, ethics is entirely cultural, cultural construction, seems to me to be like the postmodern view that science is just like any other form of belief. It's too silly. It's not serious enough to be worth discussing. We all know when we come up against it that none of us wants to be at risk of violent death Particularly, I think Bismarck once said, um, uh, not known as political philosopher, he said, there's nothing worse than being obscurely hanged. In other words, it's not like the tale of two cities by Charles Dickens in which you come before an admiring crowd, you give a little speech, everybody applauds you, then you die. You die in some vile mob violence or in some horrible cellar or under some terrible experiments or in some ghastly uh, uh, concentration camp. Nobody enjoys that, nobody wants that. These are, I think, just, if you like, facts of ethics. I know that won't persuade philosophers, but there we are. Um, human population. Um, well, population continues to grow, but it is true, and this is a very important point, it is an important point, that in many parts of the world, fertility is dropping. Why is it dropping? Well, among other reasons, it's not really, people talk, economists talk about the demographic transition. They say that when people get richer, 
they have fewer children. There's some truth in that. The real connection is simpler. Um, in, the, in most parts of the world where this is happening at a remarkable scale, the key factor is that women have themselves access to control of their own fertility. Wherever that happens, women tend to have fewer children than before as their choice. So that's the single best way of um, promoting a balance between human numbers, human population, and the planet. The problem is that even if that could be done, and you're up against religious fundamentalism of various types in the world when you try to do that, the problem is that there's an awful lot of population growth built in because of the age structure. In other words, before it starts tailing off, you're going to get up to about 9 or 10 billion within the lifetimes of most of the people in this room, most of you in this room, unless there is some cataclysmic uh, disaster, will see a world of 9 or 10 billion. In other words, I'm old enough, 1960s, there were about 3 billion people in the world. And now 6 or 7 billion. 50 years from now, or less than that, there'll be about another 3 billion. Another huge growth again. Most of you will see that. That's going to create enormous strains, even if after that point it starts to tail off. So, but of course... In this, I'm sort of insisting, if you talk to many people, say it's not the number of people in the world that matters, it's their per capita resource use. I think that's a complete delusion. If you have enormous numbers of people in the world legitimately demanding a reasonable level of life of the energy-intensive kind that we all now enjoy, there could be enormous stresses on the, biology, on, on, on the biosphere and on the climate system of the, of the world, and enormous wars in the, in the polar caps probably among other places where each of the states in which humans are organized seeks to protect the security of its citizens, whether or not it's democratic by grabbing enough resources now that's kind of very unpleasant very sort of familiar type of human behavior but unless we recognize not that it will happen, but that's already beginning to happen, not yet war but states making these claims, making these demands I think we're just, um, we're just uh, deceiving ourselves um, international law, yes. Uh, international law is important. And one of the speakers, one of the commentators said, haven't we made an advance? At least we've got these standards, certainly. That is, that is important. I think that is, that is useful. But let's not forget how fragile international law really is. Any state that's determined to ignore it can go ahead and do it. Uh, states can opt out or refuse to opt in to the International Criminal Court. They can, say, they can say they can change the definitions of things. Um, they can say, uh, we're not torturing. <coughs> we're just doing something different from torture. Although it's exactly what people who suffered at war trials and were subject in some cases even to the death penalty for what they did, did then. Um, never forget the history in this respect. In the form of Soviet Union, we tend to forget homosexuality, being gay, was not only illegal, it was said to not exist. If you asked officials, no, no, we don't have that. That's a Western phenomenon. That went on for decades and decades and decades. And so anyone who was in that situation could be blackmailed, sent to uh, uh, mental institutions, put in camps, as many leading uh, um, Russian writers and also uh, people who weren't writers but just ordinary people we've never heard of, but we now know suffered a ghastly lives. States can really well, can do a, um, uh, a great deal to disregard international standards. So I don't say they're not important. I say never rely on them. Because what they need is enforcement. 
And if you have a powerful state that just rejects them or reinterprets them or ignores them, then they mean nothing. And I think that's an important lesson to learn for those who favor something like UN government of the world or UN. I regard all those ideas as dangerous. Why do I regard them as dangerous? Because I think they inspire false hopes in oppressed people. They'll save us. They'll help us. Well, will they? Will they put the troops in when they should? Will they keep them there for 30, 40, 50 years? Will they actually implement these things? I wouldn't count on it. Um, final point, how can I, when I say that um, there is development, that human history isn't completely cyclical, how can I say that the future in ethics and politics will be similar uh, uh, to the past? I've said that science and technology show progress. There's also been a growth of wealth in the world. By any standards, we're living in an incredibly, most parts of, not all, not parts of Africa, not parts of China, not parts of India, but many human beings are living, most of us in there, all of us in this room, are living in an incredibly affluent context um, that's all, never existed before, certainly not in a mass way. That's progress, I think, in most respects. Um, uh, so how can I then say that there is no progress in ethics and politics? Well, for two reasons. The first is that this affluence depends upon humans at least avoiding the worst types of folly in terms of disastrous wars, disastrous conflicts over religions, or extremely foolish or disastrous economic policies to persist. This wealth isn't a fact of nature that now that we've got will simply renew itself automatically. If we had a period with the dollar collapsed, a period of protectionism, we had an enhanced period of warfare in the Middle East with all of the boundaries being redrawn bloodily, Conflicts involving not just Iraq, and the, uh, but also Iran, the Kurds in Iran and the Kurds in Turkey and the Kurds in Iraqi Kurdistan, involving uh, perhaps uh, also um, um, Syria uh, and uh, um, Afghanistan. If you have an extended period of, uh, um, uh, of conflict, of this geopolitical conflict like this, this would at least be quite a disturbance to the steady accumulation of wealth that has gone on otherwise. So even this wealth really depends on human wisdom, or at least on the avoidance of the worst types of human folly. If we drift back into wars of religion, if we drift back into periods of hideous dictatorship, if we have major military conflicts over the, control of, over the access and control of natural resources, then this wealth will evaporate a lot of it. Or if it persists, it will be against the background of um, a lot of it will be spent on warfare. So even that's not be taken for granted. I realize at some point in this, I've got to say something to cheer you all up. But, uh, I'll Why? Uh, Why? The longer the home anyway. Uh, that's true. Uh, um, but, um, uh, so that's my, my answer to that. And I think um, that really covers... Oh, no, there was one final question which was rather important. If I, if I was speaking to if I was speaking to policymakers, politicians, the, argue, the question was, would I prefer to be speaking to people who viewed amelioration as their task or people who believed in major human advance as possible. Well, if, if I'd been around 300 years ago or 200 years ago, I might have preferred to speak to people who had a wider vision of human possibilities than most people had then. If I was around at the time of Voltaire or uh, Montesquieu and um, someone said, well, there's no point campaigning against torture because it'll always be with us, I might have preferred 
to talk to a legislator or whoever was interested, we'd say, well, maybe we can actually abolish it. Maybe we can actually get rid of it, at least for a time. But I think the danger now is different. The danger now is that wholly unrealistic hopes and ideals mixed in with very uh, real politique types of interest, especially in resource conflict, in resource competition, lead to disastrous results. What happened in Iraq was not unpredicted. Many people predicted it. Furthermore, it was not an American error. It was a Bush error. Pretty well everyone in American institutions of government resisted it, opposed it, tried to delay it, or were adamantly against it. Most of the, nearly, most of the, all the State Department, from what we can read in the press, large sections of the CIA, practically all of the Pentagon uniformed forces were adamantly opposed to it. That's why they kept saying things like, we'll need 500,000 men to do this. They knew they wouldn't get 5,000 soldiers. They were opposed to it. But it was imposed anyway by this present um, uh, um, administration against the wishes, against the advice, against the cautions and counsels of uh, pretty well everyone in the American um, institutions of government. And the same was true in Britain. Blair was repeatedly advised that this would be dangerous, that it would be disastrous, the Foreign Office, the military, uh, pretty well everybody um, advised against us. Uh, but it went ahead because he knew better. As Mr. Blair said, after having lunch with um, Chirac, and Chirac said, but if we do this, it's before the war, there'll be a civil war in Iraq, you know. Blair said to have said as he got up from dinner, that guy simply doesn't get it, does he? Well, he may not in other respects have been a successful politician, but he did get it on this. It was an immensely dangerous um, uh, um, thing to do. So now, I think ameliorative politicians, ameliorative who see their, their view, not as bringing about a radical transformation in the human condition, but in coping with and dealing and diminishing and mitigating and, uh, and containing existing evils and handling them intelligently, are um, uh, better politicians. But I have to conclude, that's not a terribly popular thing to sell. If Mr. Cameron got up and said, well, you know, the trouble with all these problems is that they're basically insoluble. Vote me in on that. I don't think that would sweep the country. Uh, I, don't, I mean, we, the, democracy works by generating things that people want or dream of and are very often not prepared to pay the price for. So it might be difficult, but I think not impossible to be realistic. I think to some extent there's been greater realism in the past so we know that there can be more realism in the future. There has been realism. Nazism was defeated without one of the supreme evils of history, without wild fantasies about what would happen later. It was simply a grim, historical determination to get this thing destroyed, and it succeeded. So if we've got these examples of human stoicism, human courage, human resolution in the past, why can't we have them in the future? Well, thank you very much. Uh, and all, I, all I can say is that the Winston Churchill said that a great politician will promise you everything and then be able to explain why he, what he predicted did not actually happen but, and give you another set of promises. I think we will all be realistic experts, but ex ante we're going to be idealists. Anyway, thank you very much, and thank you all for being such a good audience.